circle to pray with him in the garden. And he's using the same language here that Peter uses in his epistle. He said, watch and pray with me. Be diligent. And Jesus went over and he prayed to the Father. If this cup could pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that twice as it's recorded. And he went back in the middle of that to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, could you not stay awake? Could you not stay with me in this hour where I need you the most? Watch and pray, lest you too fall into temptation. And he didn't, and Peter and James and John with the rest were startled, having not listened to the warnings of Jesus, having not followed his instructions when they came by night with the Jewish leaders and Romans' authority to take Jesus away in a situation of mass confusion occurred and it ended with the disciples alone and Jesus in the hands of the Jewish authorities, which was God's plan all along. And Peter, of course, did fail. He did deny the Lord three times and he was broken. So when Peter writes these words, he knows of what he speaks. He knows of the dangers of the evil one who wants to cause the fall of God's people. He knows of the danger of not being diligent to watch over the soul. As the writer of Proverbs says, Solomon, to watch over your heart with all diligence. Be diligent. So here then is a command to spiritual diligence. A command to spiritual diligence. And the first point here is it's a command because our enemy is diligent. Peter is going to describe him as a lion prowling around, seeking one, someone to devour or to drink down. And the idea of this imagery here is to say that Satan is constantly on the move. He's constantly on the move. He's constantly watching. He's constantly observing. He's constantly waiting. He's constantly looking for the right moment, the right place, the right manner at which to strike. Always. He doesn't lack vigilance. He doesn't lack consistency, and then neither can we. We deal with an enemy that is forever and constantly seeking to influence our mind, our affections, our attitudes, and our perspectives. And he does this often hidden behind a mask of anonymity or a mask that is a smile. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, You're familiar with this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says against the schemes of the devil, the schemes of the devil. In other words, Satan is not flying by the seat of his pants. He's not kind of making it up as he goes along. The intentions of the evil one are planned. They are intelligent. They are purposeful. They are executed with great intelligence and the experience of observation of human nature over the millennia. He knows how to promote sin. He knows how to encourage foolishness. He knows how to keep unregenerate man in unbelief and how to trip up believers. And he does this again all as a hidden enemy. Here it's revealed through, in this passage, Paul who says that he is 
the one who is behind all of the spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness in the heavenly places. Those motivating and influencing spiritual forces that are behind the darkness and the sinfulness of men, and at least in giving it direction. He is a hidden enemy that observes us not only generally, but individually, learning and mastering our own areas of weakness. Maybe some of you have read the book by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. Yeah, a few heads nodding. Excellent work. Excellent work. And what he does, as interesting as C.S. Lewis does, uh, in a very clever way, is he writes this book, uh, uh, and it's really these letters of correspondence between two demons, a head demon and a lesser demon. And throughout the book, he keeps referring to the enemy, and the enemy in this case is actually God. If you read it, it kind of takes you a while to get used to that. It's a little, it throws you off at first. But the enemy in this case is God. And so in it, he kind of traces it out the, the workings of these demons to bring about sin and unbelief and failure in the life of this one individual who is a Christian and a new convert. It captures well the idea here. He is purposeful. He's planning. He is observing. And he knows and he watches for our areas of weakness. Listen to the way it's described by one old writer, Cyprian. Now, Cyprian's writing in the 3rd century, so this particular writing was about 256 A.D. But he captures this well. Listen to what he says. Speaking of Satan, he goes about every one of us, and even as an enemy besieging those who are shut up in a city. He examines the walls. He tries whether there is any part of the walls less firm and less trustworthy. In other words, he's testing for areas of weakness. By entrance through which he may penetrate to the inside. He presents to the eyes seductive forms and easy pleasures. That he may destroy chastity by the sight. He tempts the ears with harmonious music. That by the hearing of sweet sounds he may relax and innervate. That is drain of energy. Christian vigor. He provokes the tongue by reproaches. He instigates the hand by exasperating wrongs to the recklessness of murder. To make the cheat, he presents dishonest gains. To take captive the soul by money, he heaps together mischievous hordes. He promises earthly honors that he may deprive of heavenly ones. He makes a show of false things that he may steal away the true. And when he cannot hiddenly deceive... He threatens plainly and openly holding forth the fear of turbulent persecution to vanquish God's servants. Always restless, always hostile, crafty in peace, and fierce in persecution. Isn't that a great description? It's an accurate description. Commenting on the phrase, invenerate Christian vigor, or weaken Christian vigor, the editor of where this came from notes the following examples in really reference to his time. The nude in art, the music of the opera, the sensual luxury of all sorts are here condemned. That's writing in the 3rd century A.D. It could have been written in any magazine yesterday, today. In our context, we would think of the massive allurements and saturation of all things ungodly with constant exposure to media. And... One thing that has brought great blessing and at the same time great destruction, that ever-present and ubiquitous internet at which every desire of the human heart can be explored. 
It merely has to be a thought in your mind. Make it to a type and letters on the computer, and it's exposed before the eyes. It's the hidden and concealed manners or methods that Satan's efforts to entice towards sin are the most effective. And in saturating us with a constant theme. It doesn't always come in a cheesy horror movie. It comes with pleasant sounds. I was listening to a song that one of my daughters was playing to me. Some songs that they had heard parts of. And we were examining the words just this weekend. And I got to tell you, I loved the music to every song she played. It drew you in. I thought, I like that. I could listen to all of it. But then we stopped, as some of you do, or parents, you go and you read, start reading the lyrics. And you realize these lyrics are promoting ungodliness. They promote vanity, pride, immorality. They have Christian themes, but without Christian content. Distorting and twisting and maligning. But what is the draw? Well, even as Cyprian said way back in the 3rd century, he tempts the ears with harmonious music. Oh, it's just the music that I like. It's just the music. Oh, I, okay, I know some of these things aren't really God. It doesn't really connect with biblical. But it's a great song. It sounds really good. That's where we make decisions. That's where we take the, these instructions of Peter seriously. He prowls around like a roaring lion. He is an adversary. He wants to deaden your soul to all that is beautiful in righteousness. He wants to deaden the soul in all that is glorious about Christ. He wants to lull us to sleep so we make one compromise and then another compromise and then another excuse until we're so far down the line and we wonder how we got there. And so this is how he works. The point is this, that he is always working toward and seeking the destruction of what is good. The point is is that he is vigilant, and so must we be. And we must be vigilant against him. And so he says, be sober and watchful. Sober and watchful. We sing about this in the great hymn, and this came to me, I think, yesterday. I was just thinking about this passage and found myself singing these words that Jesus paid it all. And the opening lines are this, I can hear my Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray and find in me thine all in all. It reflects what we sang this morning in that, Jesus, I need you every hour. I need you to be sober. I need you to be self-controlled. I need you to be alert, and I need you to be watchful. What does this mean then? Be sober. Be sober. Well, we've covered this before in verse 13 of chapter 1. In its literal sense, it means don't be drunk. And it's used that way occasionally, but overwhelmingly, almost exclusively, but not exclusively, but almost exclusively, it has a metaphorical sense. It's not, it doesn't usually refer just to uh, sobriety as opposed to drunkenness. Rather, it refers to being of sound mind and in control of your thoughts. And it's that way often in secular writers as well, of ancient Greek, as well as in the New Testament. But that is particularly how we see the Holy Spirit employ that word as he gives instructions to the church. We won't read all these passages, just listen. He uses this same command in 1 Thessalonians 5. It was a call to stay free from the sinful entanglements and enticements of the world. To be aware of the dangers that come with them. And so he says, Don't let, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. 
Those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But we are of the day, and so let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, keep your mind clear. Don't be drawn in and enticed by the influence and the activities of those who are of darkness. Again, this, uh, this applies in our context, particularly for the younger, but for all of us, in the saturation that we have with media and with music. That is a constant, I don't know for you, is a constant frustration. In 2 Timothy 4 or 5, he gives a charge to Timothy, Paul does, to stay clear-minded in his purpose as a pastor, unimpeded by fear or any other influence within or without that would cause him to be failing or unfaithful in his ministry. He says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. First Peter 3, again. He said, be sober, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep your mind clear. In verse 7 of chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he gave the same charge and he attached it there to the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is near. Be aware that creation as you know it will not continue. Judgment is coming. He says, therefore be of sound judgment, sober spirit. For the purpose of prayer. Be sober. Be alert. Alert here has the idea of being the opposite of asleep. But again, it is used almost exclusively with the metaphorical sense of be aware. Be sober. Be in control of your thoughts. Be aware. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't be undiligent or vigilant. Against Satan's attacks. In Matthew 24, Jesus is used it, warns of the need to be alert and watchful for the day of his return. Matthew 26, he rebukes the disciples about staying awake in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Acts 21, he exhorts the elders of Ephesus to be alert with the same word because false doctrine is going to rise up among the elders. Guard your doctrine in your life. Be aware. The evil one is working, planting seeds of deception even now. He says it in 1 Corinthians 16 in his charge to the Corinthian men to act like men and stand firm in the faith. Jesus gave this warning from heaven, the exalted Lord, to the churches, to us. In Revelation 2, he warned us, the church, from heaven to put off the spiritual slumber that leads to ruin. And he says, I'm coming to judge. I'm coming to judge. And so he says to them, wake up and repent before the time of judgment comes. The main idea is this. It is to have, he's calling us to this. It is to have an ordered and a disciplined spiritual life that lives in light of Christ's return. That is aware of the temptations that come to the soul and is sensitive to what promotes or distracts from fellowship with the Lord and usefulness and faithfulness to him. As a parent and in our, our own life, but even as a parent, we understand how we try to communicate this. Something isn't bad just because it uses explicit language. The question of judging of whether this is something I should be exposing myself to or not exposing myself to is to ask yourself this question, which is a much more discerning question. What effect does this have on my soul? Does this lead me to righteousness? Does it lead me to humility? 
Does it distract me from being able to think about Christ and his glory? Does it lead me away from his word and from wisdom? Does it lead me away from the fear of God? Those are the kind of questions we ask ourselves, not whether it uses a four-letter word or not. That's basic. An unbeliever can pick that out. But an unbeliever can't be sensitive to the effect that that has on his soul in relation to Christ and in relation to truth. That's a ministry of the Spirit within a believer. And that's, that's part of the sobriety that he's calling us here to. And alertness, be sober and alert. Not with merely the obvious, but the subtle attacks of the one who wants to destroy us. Again, Cyprian in that article says this. It's a helpful one. He says, but moreover, the Lord bade us to be prudent and charged us to watch with careful solicitude, that is care and concern, lest the adversary who is always on the watch and always lying in wait should creep stealthily into our breast and blow up a flame from the sparks, magnifying small things into the greatest. And so while soothing the unguarded and careless with a milder air and a softer breeze should stir up storms and whirlwinds and bring about the destruction of faith and the shipwreck of salvation of life. In other words, we don't usually fall to the blatant. We fall to the subtle. Right? And that's what he's warning against. And in order to be on guard, then, Peter also calls us to be aware of the character of our spiritual enemy. And that's the second part under this. The devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And here is the striking language in which Peter is intending, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to impact us, not merely with the method of Satan, we'll look at that a little bit next week, but with the character of our adversary. I mean, the problem with Hitler, when they win, is they said he's a good guy who really wants peace. Look at how he smiles and shakes our hand. They failed to understand, as some did when they read his works, his true character. He's totalitarian. He wants absolute authority and control. Well, Peter calls us into that same kind of diligence. Know who your adversary is. He prowls around like a roaring lion. The outside threat of Satan is part of the emphasis that Peter is going to be here, uh, express here later when he says, when he talks about suffering. We'll look at that next week. But the outside threat that Satan brings can be fierce indeed, but Satan has no internal power over believer. And that is an important point to begin with. He can tempt, he can persecute, he can try to influence, he can threaten, he can confuse. But he cannot cause us to sin against God. Where sin exists, we are fully responsible for that. Fully responsible. So his prowling around like a roaring lion can bring great temptation and threat to us, but he cannot make us sin. And the reality is, even as Peter gives these instructions, is that Satan is a defeated enemy. He's a defeated enemy. Jesus destroyed the power of Satan to hold the fear of death over men, Hebrews 2. Christ sealed the doom of Satan and all of those who are in Christ who are forgiven, redeemed, regenerate, and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. He has made possible for every believer to stand against all of his temptations. 
So in this sense, when Satan attacks, seeks to attack and lure into sin, true believers in the power of the Holy Spirit can obey the command of James, which says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So Peter's warning here and saying, look, be aware of your enemy and his character, and he's prowling around, he's looking for you. He'll bring external threats and internal threats. But as you receive this warning, know that Satan is a defeated enemy. He is not the ultimate here. God's gracious work of redemption in Christ is the ultimate. Nonetheless, in, in God's created realm, there is no one more opposed to us and no greater external or internal threat or external threat to us than Satan. Who is your greatest internal threat? It's an answer in your head. You and me. The greatest threat to our sanctification is us internally. Externally, it is our opponent, Satan. In reality, it's what goes on inside of us. We'll talk a little bit more about that down the road. It is our mind. It is our thoughts. It is the way that we deal with sin. It is our submission to Christ. It is our growth in the truth. It's only sin in us that Satan can ever use. That's why Jesus, he had no power over. And one of the most powerful self-statements of Jesus of his sinlessness was as he was heading to the cross and he told about Satan's coming and he says this, he has nothing in me. Nobody in this room can say that. Jesus could say that. Satan has no power in him. Why? Because Christ had no sin. He had nothing within himself for Satan to use. There was no foothold. There was no tool within him. And within us, the only power that Satan has ultimately is our own sin, our own disobedience, and our own disunbelief. And so that is at the same time a warning and it's an encouragement. Because it means as we grow in holiness, that influence that he has grows less and less. It means as we grow in our love for Christ, we can grow more confident and stable in our walk. Now... That being said, Satan is, nonetheless, by Peter's own and Scripture's own presentation, our most powerful opponent. And that's why part of Satan's work is in liberal theology, which denies the existence of a literal personal devil. But Jesus affirms it. All of Scripture does. He spoke to the devil. He talked to the devil. He had interaction with the devil, as did Paul and others. There's no doubt that Satan is a real personal being. And as commonly said, he is no common opponent. But he is the highest and the most powerful of all of God's created beings would be an implication of Scripture. Now, we've covered his origins in more detail in the past. But by way of reminder, I'll just say this. He is of the angelic class of creation. God created the angels and he created humanity. He's of the angelic class of creation. He was, in all likelihood, along with the rest of this class of creation, created before humans and possibly before the formation of the earth. Job 38.7 says that all the sons of God rejoiced at the work of creation. Implication there is that all the angelic realm, in seeing God's power displayed in forming the universe, rejoiced and gave him praise and glory. And the one who would be Lucifer was among them. He was among them. And in fact, was one of the most glorious among them. Again, this is stuff we've covered in detail before, but putting together the portrait of him 
Satan from passages such as Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation, we could say this. He was the most beautiful and honored of angels of God's angelic creation. In pride and in want of the worship given only to God, he rejected his proper place and rebelled against God, taking one-third of the angelic realm with him. He was cast out of heaven to the earth, although he still has access to heaven, where he led the human race into sin and a same rebellion against God. The present earth is under the curse of spiritual death and is now the realm of his kingdom with all the demonic realm of the angels who fell with him, who are his servants, and of all fallen humanity who are his human servants. Demons are angelic servants of Satan and humans unregenerate and unsaved are in fact human servants. In Ephesians 2, death is described like this. There is the spirit of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus told the leaders, you want to do the will of your father. You're just like him. You want to do his will. So those who are outside of Christ, whatever way that might work out in a particular person's life, are in fact under the influence of the evil one. He is the God of this world. The whole world is in his power, 1 John 5, 19. So Satan is the most powerful of angels, though he is not everywhere. Anywhere, and he's not anywhere near the power of God. And so let's just make that comparison. Satan has incredible power, incredible power, but he is not omnipotent. He is extremely intelligent, but he is not omniscient. He is amazingly swift, but he is not omnipresent. And though he presently has authority on earth, he will be destroyed in hell forever along with all of the fallen angels and who remain and those who remain under his deceiving influence. He will be destroyed. So Peter identifies him here, though, as this. Let's just look at these. Your adversary, the devil. The devil. These are really striking uh, titles. And, but they're only some of the titles that he's given in Scripture. I won't list all the verses. I'll just list some of them. He's called the serpent of old, the tempter, the enemy, the evil one the prince of demons, the father of lies, a murderer, a roaring lion in our passage, prince of the power of the air, god of this world, deceiver, dragon, accuser of the brethren. One source noted 29 different titles, the ways that he's referred to in Scripture. But here, a common title and simply is the devil. And the term itself speaks of one who slanders. As a matter of fact, it's used of, against of people in 1 Timothy 3.11, for example, of a human person slandering. It is to be diabolical, if you will. It's of one who slanders, and that really is the character of the devil. It really is the character of the devil. It's the one who speaks against someone else, who maligns and twists and distorts and lies in order to cause harm or bring destruction to another. And that actually is his activity against believers. We're... Familiar with that most commonly from what book? The book of Job. He prowls around. He did patrolling the earth, looking around. He goes before the Lord. He's presenting himself with others, as the picture goes. And God says, if you considered my servant Job, who was righteous and 
Satan says he only worships you because you give him stuff. Let me take it, and he'll curse you to your face, showing the true nature of the enemy. And we know the rest of the story. But he was there accusing Job. Job is a false believer. Job only uses you. You are nothing more to Job than a genie in a hat because you give him what he wants. You take away what he has, and he'll hate you like everybody else. That was his argument. I have an interesting picture of this also in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. You may be familiar with this. It's in the Minor Prophets. But in Zechariah chapter 3, we have this interesting scene. And it says then in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to do what? To accuse him. To accuse him. In Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He is the devil. He is a slanderer. He is an accuser. He is one speaking against. And that's what he does. In this capacity, then, the slander from the world against Christ and Christians is but the fruit of the devil's work. So we see that in 1 Peter. So here he's called the slanderer, the one who speaks against God's people. And that's exactly what Peter is telling them to endure from the world. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, So that in the thing in which they slander you, although it's a different word there, but the same idea, the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. He says in chapter 4, that because you don't run with them to the same excess, your former friends before you knew Christ, he says they will malign you. Who's behind that? Well, here, the adversary, the devil. What is he trying to do through these human agents? He's trying to discourage. He's trying to defeat. He's trying to deflate. He's trying to make ineffective in their Christian witness. And that's why Peter has to remind them, look to the end. Don't fall to these tricks. Don't fall to them. Endure to the end. Endure to the end. He is the adversary. He is the devil. By this name, devil, he's mentioned approximately 14 times in the Gospels alone. Over 30 times, if I remember correctly, in all of the New Testament. But over 14 times in the Gospels alone. There, as he is consistent in his work, he's seen tempting Christ in order to destroy his messianic ministry in the wilderness. He's seen in Matthew 13 sowing tares in the world to trip up God's people and to destroy the kingdom-building work of the Spirit. He's also seen as taking the word of the gospel out of the heart of unbelievers, of some. The seed that fell on the, the ground, the hard ground, Satan came like the birds of the air and he snatched it out of their heart, Jesus said. It's used to speak of Judas, of whom it was said that he was a devil in John 6.70. That is, he was a tool of the devil implanted among the disciples, which Jesus chose, whom Jesus chose. In verse 2 of chapter 13, before Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, it was the devil who put in Judas's heart to betray him. And in verse 27 of chapter 13, under the title of Satan, he's the one who entered Judas's heart to then go to the Jewish authorities and commit the crime and atrocity that he did. And again, we already mentioned his use in Peter's life. 
And so here it is. What is the devil? Know your adversary. Know his character. He is the one who has as his deepest desire and focus to bring the utmost dishonor to God by doing all that he can to divert worship from him, to cause men to hate him. We saw that with Job. To distort and pervert his image in man, to thwart all of his purposes and to kill God himself, which is what he sought to do in Christ. And he prowls around like a lion. This is powerful imagery. That imagery is used of Jesus to speak of the Lion of Judah to protect his power to fulfill his covenant promises to defend against the enemies. Here it's used of Satan to speak of one who is watching and studying his prey, as I mentioned, to kill and to destroy. As a lion, he is stealthy and patient, waiting for the right moments of attack. As a lion, he looks for the weakest element to strike. As a lion, he is strong and seeks to overpower. As a lion, he is driven by a strong appetite that needs to be satisfied. This is who he is. And so so one way to help understand him is to understand the nature of his character. His character, and that's what this point is. It's to show the nature of his work. Because again, if we don't understand the true nature of his work, we're not really going to understand the danger of our enemy. Now, in one sense, it's true that we understand sin not by looking at sin, but by looking at the perfection of God, the perfection of Christ. As we see the glory of God, then everything else that opposes that we see in its true nature and color. If we spend all of our time trying to just understand sin and look at sin and think how bad sin is, we're never really going to understand it. In fact, we'll be tempted and drawn into it, most likely. So we, we understand the true nature of sin really by looking at who God himself is and all of his perfection and his glory and his holiness. But it's also true in light of the perfection and the holiness of God that we understand our enemy by understanding his character and considering it as well in comparison with who God is. And I want to end, I'm just going to mention a few things. We'll pick some of this up next week and finish this passage. What is the nature of his enemy? What is his real intent? So when we think of all of the flowery ways in which sin presents itself to us, what is it really? I'm going to just mention these this morning, and then we'll pick it up here next week and, uh, again, look at the rest of the passage. Here are at least six areas, though, in which the true character of Satan is exposed against the beauty of God's holiness. One, and, and I mention this because it is such an issue in our own culture, He destroys the sexual beauty and satisfaction of marriage that God designed. And he distorts it. He makes it something of great destruction. Secondly, God always speaks and promotes the truth, but Satan operates in the realm of lies and deception that break and destroy. God displays and promotes humility and service of others for their good. Satan promotes pride, arrogance, and the abuse and misuse of others for personal advantage. God created, number four, and redeemed in order that we might have life and flourish in the world. Satan's only intention is to bring death, misery, and destruction. God works towards all that will create peace and sincere unity and joy. Satan works to divide, create schisms, to separate and to destroy. And finally, the ultimate evidence of Satan and his character is found in two places. That is the cross and eternal hell. At the cross, Satan displayed his true colors. It was as much a revelation of him 
in some ways as it was of the glory of God because it showed what his true intentions were, and that was to cause the maximum amount of suffering on God as he could possibly cause through the agency of humanity. The greatest suffering would actually be caused by the Father himself. But Satan wanted to have as much of a role in that as he could and put him to death. But in doing that, he also accomplished, God did, his greatest victory and the very thing that would destroy our adversary. And so such is the intention of Satan and such are the intentions of God. And gloriously and thankfully, God's purposes are the ones who will stand. But I want to end today, really we're going to look at believers next week and really and, and to see our uh, resistance to him. How do we do that? How do we stand firm in faith? But I, I actually want to just emphasize this point uh, today because I know that this is true of some among us. Those who are unbelieving and continually refuse to repent and who are comfortable or outside of Christ, who acknowledge that you are not a believer, but you're okay with that. Maybe you should be, but you're okay with it. It doesn't cause you to lose sleep at night. Then I can only say this, that you are in the exact place that Satan wants you to be. You are in the best possible place for deception and for destruction. You are believing the lies he whispers in your ears, and he loves it so because he wants nothing more than to drag you down to hell with him, to spend eternity under God's displeasure and destruction forever that he himself will endure. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, that eternal destruction was created for the devil and all those who follow after him. And so for unbelievers, the warning is to take seriously and do not be lulled to sleep in your comfort. And for believers, which we'll look at more next week, it is to be reminded that we need to be diligent against sin. We need to not sleep on the job. We need to understand the nature and the tactics of our enemy and stand firm in the gospel of Christ in our pursuit of holiness. Let me pray, and then we'll have John Elias in closing song. Father, thank you for the way that your word helps us to think clearly. Forgive us for our failure to be diligent. Forgive us, each of us who know you, knows that we have conviction of sin in our own hearts where we have been far too complacent with where we are far too compromising at times in our spiritual battle. Far too often making excuses for what we know is not righteous. Forgive us and stir us up and remind us to be diligent in the pursuit of Christ because in Christ is our greatest joy, our greatest happiness, our greatest blessing. And Father, for those here who do not know the Son, I do pray that you would Stir them up and awaken them to the seriousness of their condition. And that you would show them the horrors of darkness. But you would show them even more wonderfully the glories of the light. The glories of Christ. The wonders of forgiveness. Of reconciliation. And of hope. And it is to that end we pray that you would work all things according to your will in the name of Jesus. Amen.